0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 396th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222. Or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. Today on our podcast, we have someone who incorporates wild ingredients into everyday and special occasion fare. We're talking with Marie Philune about wild-inspired cuisine. Marie is a celebrated New York City forager, gardener, cook, and author who has loved edible plants since her childhood in South Africa. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and leads acclaimed seasonal wild plant walks through New York City. In Marie's new book, Forage, Harvest, Feast, there is a groundbreaking collection of nearly 500 wild food recipes. It features hundreds of color photographs as well as cultivation tips for plants easily grown at home. This cookbook is destined to become a standard reference for any cook wanting to transform wildcrafted and homegrown ingredients into exceptional dishes, spices, and drinks. Welcome to the show today, Marie. Are you ready to rock wildcrafting?
1: I sure am, Greg. Let's go.
0: Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today?
1: Well, Greg, there are so many blanks and so much to fill in because (laughs) foraging is not usually the first thing that someone thinks they're going to become. You know, I'm not going to say to myself as a little kid, I'm going to be a forager one day. So I've had several careers and several jobs my first official job was as an opera singer, which obviously has absolutely nothing to do with foraging. Wow. And the roots to foraging go much, much, much further, really, to where I was growing up in South Africa. And my mom literally handed me packets of seeds. And the first seeds I remember her giving me were radishes. Sent me into the garden, gave me my own little patch of dirt, and I planted those radishes. And I think this was really before even kindergarten. So my memories of growing, of gardening, of growing food, and of picking that fruit to eat are kind of ancient. And I think that set the groundwork for what eventually became a life as a forager.
0: So what does a life as a forager look like, especially in New York City?
1: (laughs) He's so skeptical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Anyone who lives outside of a big city yeah, everyone's just stunned that you can forage in a huge city like this. So many millions of human beings. And the fantastic thing about New York City is it's a place that is packed with people, but it's also packed with very beautiful public parks. And it's not just the famous ones like Central Park in Manhattan or mm-hmm. Prospect Park in Brooklyn. There are big, open, wild spaces in Staten Island, way out in Brooklyn, right against the ocean. And when I walk there, I'm always amazed that I very seldom see another human being. And that's something that still surprises me. A lot of New Yorkers aren't aware of these green spaces. Certainly people from further afield and rural areas are always surprised to hear that, you know, I can go foraging in a beautiful green park and find something that's good to eat and that is not going to kill me and it's not poisonous. But I really can almost daily life. I'll always be finding something wild somewhere. And for the record, I never ever eat weeds from the sidewalk.
0: (laughs) You do or you don't?
1: I do not. I do not. (laughs)
0: Got it. You're foraging in the green spaces around New York City.
1: Exactly. I'm foraging in the public green spaces around New York City. I use good judgment. I use common sense. I stay away from where there are lots of people, where there are lots of dog walkers, for instance. You don't want to be near where dogs have been. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm lucky in that I also forage from my own garden. We live in Brooklyn and currently we have a big backyard and I cultivate a lot of the plants that I've written about in forage harvest feast. So it's really a matter of opening the kitchen door, walking out into the garden and grabbing something delicious to eat right from the backyard. And I'm hoping to encourage more and more people to plant some of these really delicious edibles.
0: Well, so you just brought up a very interesting thought. You're foraging in your own wild backyard. So a lot of us might call that we're going out to our garden and picking something, but you're calling it foraging. Can you say something about
1: that? It's something that's quite hard to define. I'm actually and essentially a gardener. My oldest roots, my oldest love, the thing I need to do every day is garden. I'm kind of lost if I'm not planting and gathering things. So for me, it's gardening. When I walk out to my garden and I pick some plants, But what are the plants I'm picking? I'm picking sweet ferns, I'm picking mugwort, I'm picking quickweed, amaranth, lamb's quarters, purslane, which most people would consider either just wild plants or in some cases weeds,
2: Mm -hmm. really
1: invasive weeds. I call it foraging to try and explain to people who are not used to growing them or eating them that these are plants that are considered wild, but really have a place in a kitchen garden because they taste good, they're nutritious, and they're a little different from what we see every day in the grocery store or even the farmers market. But to me, foraging and gardening are sometimes very, very close together.
0: There is a caveat that we have to throw out there about foraging, and that is you really need to know what you're foraging for.
1: Yes, of course, you know, and because I'm really familiar with plants, but sometimes something I. Take for granted a little. The lucky thing about having written a cookbook, which has so many wild plants in it, is that it has now been preceded by a handful of really good field guides. And so a field guide is basically a little textbook that shows you many pictures of the plant, that identifies the plant. This is your tool for learning what that plant is. There are also countless groups online on Facebook. There's a great plant identification group on Facebook. So these are tools that you do need if you're not familiar with plants already. And when you go out and you start foraging, you know you pick one of those plants and you learn what it looks like at different times of the year. At the same time, people who have never foraged are often really afraid of it. They think they're going to poison themselves. They think they're going to pick something that's growing in a bad area. And I can't help thinking of the mass-produced food scares we have across the United States. I think one of the most recent ones, like romaine, Don't eat the romaine. It's packaged and it's contaminated. Or don't eat the packaged spinach because it's contaminated with E. coli. Most food poisoning in the United States is not from wild foods. It's from foods in the supermarket.
0: Right. And I don't know what to say to that, but you're right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just something to bear in mind, you know?
0: Yeah. So you have a blog, 66 square feet. I'm assuming that was the size of your garden at one point?
1: Exactly. Once upon a time, we lived in a tiny little apartment in Brooklyn, and we still live in Brooklyn, which was really small. And the exact size of the terrace was 66 square feet. So that's where the name comes from. And we've since moved, I think, three times. So the size keeps going up and down. But I like to keep the name because gardening in such a small space really taught me about what you can grow and what is possible, even in a very miniature urban space. And, you know, the potential is actually huge.
0: Yeah. Well, and like what? Because I'm looking at a picture on your blog here on your About Us page, Harlem Terrace, June of 2014. It looks all of about 12 by 8 feet with maybe a black cat sitting in the middle of it.
1: Oh, the black cat. I miss the black cat. His name was Don Estorbo de la Bodega Dominicana. But anyway, we digress. Harlem was actually 400 square feet.
0: Ah, all right. It looks like you have a lot growing there.
1: There was a ton growing in Harlem. That space was very interesting because it was surrounded by tall buildings, and we had four hours of direct sunlight from, you know, depending on the time of year, like noon to 3 p.m., which is kind of extreme. So you have shade, shade, shade. Sun, sun, sun.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: I learned what grew there. So I grew Malabar spinach, which is the subtropical vining green, which is fantastic for almost full shade. I grew black raspberries really successfully. They produced a lot of fruit in just four hours of sun. There were tons of blueberries, climbing beans, lots of herbs like parsley, mint, basil. They all love some shade. Yeah. So the only things I was not growing was pool, sun, herbs, rosemary, sage, thyme. But every move we've had, we've had very different conditions. And it's taught me so much about what different people all over the country have to deal with in terms of their own gardening situation. So a great practical instruction.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, I tell people all the time that the most expensive thing to buy and the simplest thing to grow is herbs. So grow herbs.
1: Yeah, I would be so lost if I didn't have my own herbs. I use them every day. I love them.
0: Right. So, So in looking at your blog, you have been a prolific blogger for quite a long time. Tell me about how the blog got started.
1: Oh, that's an interesting question because sometimes I forget. Yes, I've been blogging since approximately the ice age. (laughs) It began actually with that black cat that you saw on that terrace, Don Estorbo. As a complete joke, I started a blog for the cat. I thought, well, people read blogs. I'm just going to write this funny, irreverent blog about New York City from the point of view of a cat. And then he got so much attention that I thought, hmm, I'm going to write a blog essentially for my mom, who's 8,000 miles away in Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm going to show her what's going on on my tiny terrace, which is 66 square feet large or small. Mm -hmm. And that's how it really started in 2007, very long ago. And it was really just a way of sharing my gardening experiences, my flops, my successes, and having a way to communicate with my mom, who was very, very far away. But it led to a lot of other things, which was just fantastic.
0: Awesome. And what is one of the more incredible things you've written about?
1: Oh, that's a hard question to answer. I think every single story I write about is incredible to me i do a lot of writing for different publications as well so it's not just on my blog i think what turns out to be incredible is really what other people respond to so something as simple as writing about growing strawberries in six inch pots and having enough strawberries to actually have dessert this resonated with so many people who are reading the story everyone started growing strawberries (laughs) nice more things that can impact other people's lives, you know, growing in different cities, growing in different countries. That sense of connection is awesome.
0: Yeah. So your book, Forage, Harvest, feast a wild inspired cuisine it's by our friends over at chelsea green how did this come to be this is an extraordinary book here it's hardbound and maybe 500 pages this is a lot of recipes and a lot of data how did you make this happen
1: it's a process and thank you i'm so glad you like it You know, as I was gathering wild things and playing around in my own kitchen almost every single day to make dinner for me and my husband, I would take notes and these notes would go into little moleskin notebooks. And... The moleskin notebooks, they just stacked up and stacked up. You know, I have dozens of these notebooks now. And then I would get to the next year and the next season, and I'd want to make something I'd made two years ago, but it was really hard to find. So I'd have to go through all the moleskins. Where is it? Where is it? And I realized I really needed an index system. So actually, the book came about because I needed my own book. I really needed to be able to look in a book, but I needed an index. Yeah, I think the part of Harvest Feast that I like the most is the index, because I can just go straight to sumac or mugwort or elderberry, and they're all the recipes. So easy. I don't have to go scrambling through these notebooks. Mm -hmm. And Chelsea Green Publishing was just fantastic. I sent them a proposal. I had not written the whole book. I really just had a recipe outline and more or less what I wanted to do. And they were very excited about it and have been tremendously supportive. I think everyone has different publishing experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I've written another book, but this particular experience was just absolutely wonderful. I can't say enough good things about them.
0: Yeah, this is not the first time I've heard that about Chelsea Green. They're incredible, and they put together incredible books. I mean, the photography and the way this is laid out, it's just beautiful.
1: Yeah, I was really impressed.
0: I'm going to ask you a question that you may not be able to answer. Tell me about your favorite recipe.
1: That is such a hard question to answer. You're absolutely right. But I'm going to dive right in. I'm just going to pick one sort of from the season because I love so many of them. In New York City, elderberries were ripe hmm, about three, four weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I fermented a bunch of the really ripe berries and made them into a really delicious syrup. So when I'm feeling sick or weird, I have the syrup just as a medicine. But the leftover fermented elderberries are absolutely delicious. So I designed this pie just for them. Any vegans listening, I'm sorry, but it's a pork pie. I use Happy Pigs. Well, uh-huh. happy until they're slaughtered, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, not very happy then. An old-fashioned hot water crust pork pie with this relish-fermented elderberries inside it. Wow. And then I also use a couple of other wild spices, including juniper berries, that occur pretty much all over the United States. There's always a species of juniper native to your region, mm-hmm. and that pork pie is just killer. You can have it hot, but what I really like is to chill it overnight, and then you take it on a picnic and you slice a wedge out of that pie with the elderberries it's making me really hungry as i speak
0: there you go i'm sitting here thinking through this process of you thinking through how to put something like this together where did that come from
1: you know i've been cooking for almost as long as i've been gardening so cooking comes very naturally to me i love to eat i think that's really important too. someone who eats I'm used to growing unusual plants. So there's this kind of library of flavors in my head. Uh When I started experimenting with wild flavors, I would often go to traditional recipes that didn't use any odd ingredients and adapt those recipes to a wild ingredient and a wild flavor until I was also beginning to create, I think, dishes which are occasionally unique. I mean, most times when we write cookbooks, We're not creating something fresh or new. We're borrowing from a lot of other people and a lot of other traditions. Mm -hmm. So I definitely borrow. But I think with more experience and confidence, it's possible to create dishes that nobody's really eating anywhere else. And I think that's very, very exciting. And it really just comes from experience and becoming familiar with flavors. And that also was a big inspiration for writing Forage Harvest Feast. It was certainly a reference book for myself, but there really isn't a book that addresses wild foods in depth. There are many very good books that talk about one plant and they might give one recipe. What I wanted to do was talk about a handful of super versatile plants and give each of those plants a thorough treatment from cocktails to syrup to appetizers, salads, entrees, desserts, bread, cake, all for one ingredient. Because that gives the reader who doesn't know a plant some sense of what is possible,
0: like purslane.
1: Like purslane.
0: I'm sitting here and looking through your purslane chapter, and you have purslane in peach soup, purslane in tomatillo gazpacho. You have cold noodle salad with purslane. You've come up with maybe a dozen for purslane.
1: Yeah, I'm doing a quick count. It's about it's about a dozen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, purslane is a great plant because it's ready in late summer. It's very succulent. It grows in drought conditions. Mm -hmm. It has this great flavor variation. It's sour during one part of the day. It's much sweeter in the other part of the day. And because of its succulent texture, you can do all kinds of things with it. You can cook it, you can eat it raw, and it's incredibly healthy. I'm sure there'll be more studies, but so far the plant with the most omega-3 fatty acids ever measured. So instead of having your fish oil capsule, you go out and grab some purslane.
0: Which grows wild in most yards, I would say.
1: Most gardeners would hate purslane. And I think most farmers hate purslane. Very happy to start seeing bunches of purslane being sold at my local farmer's market, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic because it's making money for the farmer and it's introducing shoppers who can't go out and forage to this fantastic ingredient.
0: So here's a question that you might have to think about. Another one. What is the coolest thing that you found foraging in New York City?
1: Ah, oh, there are so many. You know, what I find in New York City is exactly what I find one to two hours north of New York City, up the Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's so exciting about foraging in the city. You find these fantastic things. Mushrooms. We're heading now into hen of the woods season. September, October is when this fantastic, huge mushroom appears at the base of oak trees, beech trees, maple trees. And then plants. I think the most unusual plant that I've foraged is something called American boneweed, which sounds a little scary. Uh-huh. but it's an annual, it's indigenous to North America, and it tastes a lot like a very close cousin to cilantro. Ooh. People either hate cilantro or they love cilantro. I love cilantro. And when I was researching this plant, because I stumbled across it in Central Park one day, it's this huge five-foot-tall plant, I thought, what is this? And I crushed the leaves, and they smelled so, so aromatic. And I just felt this has got to be edible. <laughs> So I had a little taste and it was good. I'm always careful with a new plant. It's not like I'm going to wolf it down and swallow it, but I had a little taste. And then I started reading. And the only research I could find about American burnweed was really early European explorers saying pretty nasty things about it, like it's really rank, it's really pungent. And then references to Native Americans using it. And this is a great clue when you do research. If Native Americans were using a plant there's a very good chance. It's good for you. It might be medicine and it mm-hmm. could be edible. So I started to eat American burnweed, and it's absolutely delicious.
0: Nice. And you are famous for your foraging walks around New York City. Tell me about those.
1: I love leading foraging walks. You know, again, essentially, I'm a gardener. I come to foraging from a botanical and horticultural background. hmm So on a foraging walk, we talk about all the plants we see, not just the edible ones, but weeds, invasive plants, exotic plants, edible plants. And at the end of the walk, we have a picnic of three to four courses, all sorts of tastes of the plants we've just seen. And I think the picnics are really the highlight because everyone sits around this huge picnic class that I spread wherever we happen to be. Mm -hmm. And we talk about the plants and we talk to each other. And it's a very interesting way for people to meet each other. It's often New Yorkers. It's often people visiting the city from other countries. And I really learn as much from the people who attend these foraging walks. They might learn from me. I find them really rewarding.
0: Yeah. And I love what you just said. I'm a lifelong learner. I never stop learning. And I love that you just said that you learn as much from them as they do to you. That is a real sign to me of building cool community.
1: Oh, that's great. I feel quite moved by it because I meet people who have different points of view or different cultural backgrounds or who argue with me. (laughs) Right. And having your own point of view challenged is really very healthy.
0: Beautiful. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it.
1: Ah, the good failure story. There are many little failures in my foraging life, but I think the one that was actually the nicest, The failure story and the success story are the same. So the failure was I had... One early summer, like two dozen bottles of common milkweed cordial. Common milkweed is an indigenous weed that monarch butterflies happen to love very much. Right. But the flowers are intensely fragrant. They smell fantastic. So I make a syrup or cordial from the flowers. It's fermented. And once it's bottled, I either keep it in the fridge or if it's very stable, I'll keep it in my little foraging cupboard. But this particular year, I was a little nervous. I didn't want fermented bottles to be building up a lot of gas and then exploding, because they can do that. That's why the fridge is a really good idea. So every day I was loosening their caps and letting them breathe. You call it burping in fermenting circles. And then one day, apparently, I forgot to tighten all the caps. So these dozen really precious bottles, all of them have loose caps. I went back maybe six, eight weeks later, and I tasted one. It was completely sour. And I was just so angry. I'd completely blown this whole season of beautiful common milkweed. Mm-hmm. And then I tasted it again and thought, you know, this tastes a lot like vinegar. And I had another taste, and I realized it was vinegar.
0: Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> where my mind went, As if it's sour, could it be vinegar?
1: Yeah, that was the very first time I made vinegar. and it was. A- total mistake. I had not intended it, but there it was. There was even a vinegar mother in each little bottle that had formed spontaneously. Yeah. So since then, I've been making vinegar on purpose. And I'm not sure that I would have gone down that path if I hadn't completely forgotten to tighten those caps. Mm -hmm. And now I make vinegar from so many different ingredients. And it's just a fantastic way of preserving a flavor, preserving a season. And I cook with it a lot. It's really versatile.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we forage for here in the low desert is prickly pear.
1: Ah, wonderful.
0: Yeah. I recently tried some prickly pear vinegar that was made. It was pretty nice.
1: Oh, good. You should make your own.
0: Yeah. You know, (laughs) who'd have thunk it? So what do you consider your biggest success?
1: You know, I honestly think that vinegar was one of my biggest successes just because it was a fluke, it was an accident, it wasn't planned. It's such a complex flavor. I'm going to be attending an event in a week's time hosted by the magazine Better Homes and Gardens, and we're using one of those vinegars for the event. And that would never have happened if, you know, one year I hadn't forgotten to tighten those bottles. Right. And then otherwise, I think just in terms of successes, when you manage to reach somebody else, and persuade them that planting a really unusual plant is a great idea, or that they should go for a walk one day and see what they come back with that's edible, because it opens their eyes not just to that edible plant, but to the fact that nature is all around us. Mm-hmm. It's very unpredictable. It's very inspiring. And connecting people with nature, it's a fantastic feeling.
0: Yeah. I'm going to throw another curveball at you. I want you to think about your time in sharing about plants. Was there one person that just rocked your world? you know, when you kind of got through to them?
1: I think that a lady who comes on many of my foraging walks, her name is Kyoko. She's Japanese. We had a very sort of shy relationship in the beginning. But then as we got to know one another, she would start bringing me treats and tidbits, which she made in very old Japanese ways and techniques using old traditions. And she actually introduced me to plants that I would not have used otherwise.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. She really introduced me to prickly ash, which is a North American tree. Its botanical name is xylem americanum. It's quite a mouthful. But it's a close relative to basically Sichuan pepper. And Sichuan pepper in East Asia is Xanthosylem piperatum. It's just a different species of prickly ash. And prickly ash is a fantastic edible tree. You eat the baby leaves, you eat the immature fruit and the ripe fruit, and it's essentially Sichuan pepper, but it's American. It's a native flavor. And so here's this Japanese lady teaching me about Sancho, which is the Sichuan pepper, and I'm recognizing that right in front of us is this American prickly ash tree, and she's getting so excited. Oh, Sancho! That's is Sancho! <laughs> yeah you know, we go on this sort of digression to do more research and to discover a plant that's growing under our noses all the time. That's a really fantastic ingredient in the kitchen.
0: Yeah. Well, there you go. And there's the community piece again. I love that. So what drives you?
1: I don't feel like a particularly driven person, but I think one thing about me is I'm really curious. I'm insatiably curious. And when you're curious, you tend to discover new things. So the discovery is new flavors, new ways to use familiar or unfamiliar plants. And I think that curiosity and that discovery then drive me to share that knowledge because it's no fun if you're keeping it to yourself. And I find this just very exciting work it's hard not to draw other people into that thrill of discovery.
0: Yeah, especially when you're feeding them extraordinary food.
1: The sure way is to feed them something that goes straight to their stomachs.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why?
1: It's such a tough question because I must have 40 foraging books at least. But I'm going to pick one that's maybe a little unusual because it's out of print, but I know you can find it if you search for it online. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's the Wild Foods Field Guide and Cookbook by Billy Jo Tatum. It's a little soft cover, and she was writing about southern foraging, in fact, but many of these plants that are ubiquitous spread across the country. And she has a really strong voice, the voice of someone living in the country and living with plants and cooking them every day. It's a really charming book.
0: Beautiful. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
1: I would go out for a walk and find one plant that looks interesting and bring that plant home and identify it. You can use a book or you can use the internet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but learning pattern recognition, which is how I think of identifying plants, is the very first step to being independent in nature. Just pick one plant any plant.
0: You can take a picture of it. There's some apps out there, interestingly enough. If a plant has a flower on it, they can identify it via the flower as well.
1: The tools for identification are evolving rapidly, you know, from old school books. And I happen to really like books. But the internet's a powerful tool. Apps are very interesting.
0: Yeah. So get yourself a field guide. Go out and hang out outside and try a few things. Is that what I hear?
1: Pretty much. And as you said earlier, make sure you've identified the plant. There are in fact very few in North America that will kill you, but there are a couple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Be sure of what you're eating and sign up for a walk with a local forager or with a local botanical garden or college and get into the background of plants.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Marie.
1: It was fantastic to be with you. Thank you, Greg.
0: You bet. So how can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: The best place to find me is on Instagram. If you look for at 66 square feet, so it's 66 square feet. There's always a picture every day of what I'm doing with wild foods, or you can Google my blog, which is 66 square feet.
0: Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash 66 square feet. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then, let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your Urban Farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com.
2: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org.